The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 2:19-22. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Rebecca. So St. Peter's Basilica in Rome is considered the largest Christian church building in the world. It covers more than five and a half acres it took 120 years to build, and 21 different popes were in charge while it was being constructed. So as you can imagine, the cost was enormous. It's estimated at over $7 billion in today's money. To finance a program, a building program this large, the pope authorized the selling of indulgences. So an indulgence is a way to get out of punishment for sin by giving money to the Catholic Church. If you wanted less suffering on earth or a shorter time in purgatory, you could give money to the church and receive days, weeks, or years of reprieve from the punishment of sin. The most famous seller of indulgences was a German inquisitor named Johann Tetzel. He became famous for his rhyme, When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. His widespread sale of indulgences to fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica is actually what prompted Martin Luther to write the 95 Thesis, an event which sparked the Protestant Reformation. Bad theology and church building funds have a long history. How many of you have heard a series of sermons on Nehemiah that substitute the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem with the building of a new church building? You don't need to raise your hand. Some of you actually mentioned to me your gratitude that we did not do that, that, you have, that we haven't used the book of Nehemiah as the main text for a preaching series on building. In October 2020, we unveiled the plans for the future to build, partner, and go, and we did so by studying generosity in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, because we wanted to be careful not to twist the scripture to make a case for a church building. And though we applied generosity to our plans to build, partner, and go, we never have had a sermon on building a church building until today. Now, I want to do something, we're going to do something a little bit different than we normally do on a Sunday morning. So if you're new to Redeemer, you're a guest this morning, this is is a little different, okay, a little strange. This doesn't happen every week. Normally what we do is we take a passage, a single passage of Scripture, we explain what God is saying to us in that particular passage. We usually do that as we study through books of the Bible as a whole. Just a few weeks, we're going to go through, start the Gospel of Mark, and this spring walk through the Gospel of Mark chapter by chapter. We're not doing that today because there is no specific passage in the Bible that deals directly with building a church building. So we're not going to go to one and pretend it does. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to think theologically this morning. We're going to think theologically about why and how we build as a church. I think it's good for us to consider this issue of building a church building theologically. What truths from the Bible should guide our thinking about a church building? But there's not one specific passage. As we prayerfully have considered building a church building and we think about what's next, 
there are two theological truths that serve as guardrails to guide us in the process. These are the two truths which shape our thinking about the role of a building in the life of a Redeemer, and that's what we're going to discuss this morning from the Scriptures. So here's the first theological guardrail. Okay, the church is a people, not a place. The church is a people, not a place. This first guardrail protects us from putting too much emphasis on a church building. Because the way people often talk about a church equates the church with a building. For instance, someone might say, I've got to swing by the church and drop off this book. Or I've got to, I've got to pick that up at the church. Now, what they mean when they say the church is the church building, but if we're not careful, we can start to think of the two as synonymous. And one way we try to combat this confusion is by using our language carefully on Sundays. So you heard Jesse give a call to worship earlier in the service. We give one of those at the beginning of every service, and in it, someone welcomes you to this gathering, you can probably say it with me, of Redeemer Community Church. It's not a gathering at Redeemer but a gathering of Redeemer. Even when we have our own building, we're not going to gather at Redeemer. We'll gather as Redeemer. We are the church. I'm sure there'll be times like that we'll catch ourselves, we'll use the shorthand to describe the building, but we've got to be careful that we never confuse a building with a church. A church, by its very nature, is an assembly of believers. The word translated church is used 114 times in the New Testament. Never once does it refer to a place. It always refers to an assembly of people. A church is a recognized group of believers, not a specific building. But let's think for just a minute about the church in relation to an Old Testament building called the temple. When God called his people, Israel, out of slavery, we talked about this a little bit in December as we sort of went through the story of the Old Testament. So God's people were enslaved in in Egypt. God called them out of Egypt. He had them design a really fancy tent that would be at the center of their worship. And the story goes, they had to go camping for 40 straight years. That sounds like purgatory to me, right? They had this fancy tent. It's called the tabernacle. They carried around it with them. They set it up for years as they traveled in the wilderness. Even after they finally reached their home in Canaan, they still had this tabernacle. This was the place where the priests ministered. It was a place where people went and took offerings for, to cover their sin. This was the tabernacle. It was the place where Hannah went and prayed when she was barren and longed for a child. This was the center of Israel's worship. Now, when David became king of Israel, one of his great desires was to build a permanent structure to replace the temporary tent, so to build a temple instead of a tabernacle. This was what he wanted. He longed to have this this beautiful place that reflected something of God's glory so that people from all over could gather and worship God there. But God said to David, no, you're not going to build it. You're going to collect all of the materials And then your son Solomon, he'll be in charge of overseeing the construction. And so when Solomon finished the temple, it was this grand structure that people came from other nations to find the true worship of God. And this was was the focus of Israel's worship for centuries. Now, we looked at the exile. Do you remember the exile? This was when Nebuchadnezzar brought his armies in and defeated Israel. And one of the things he did was he destroyed the temple. And from the moment he destroyed it, all Israel could think about was getting back and rebuilding it. And they did eventually rebuild it and got destroyed again. By the time Jesus was born, the, the, the temple had been restored by King Herod. It was not as glorious as it was under Solomon, but it was still this amazing structure. 
And there it stood sort of at the high point of the city of Jerusalem as this sort of beacon calling people to worship the true God, the God of Israel. But after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the location of worship changed. No longer a centralized spot, the temple. It was now a gathered assembly, the church. Wherever the church met, God was present to be worshipped. Jesus talked about this actually before his death and resurrection. So in John 4, he's talking with the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman, and he's, and he's explaining to her the good news that he has come to save people. And listen to what he says in John 4, verse 21. He says, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father. Listen to what he says. He says, neither on this mountain. So there was a temple in Samaria where they, they sort of practiced this, this mix of pagan worship and, and the worship of the God of Israel. He says, you won't worship here, nor, this is shocking to a Jewish person in this time, nor will you worship in Jerusalem. In other words, it's not a location anymore. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews or through the Jews. But he says, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, not in a central location. He says, yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. So the temple was no longer a place, but a people. God is present wherever Christians gather to worship. So we don't go to the nations and invite them to journey to Jerusalem. We tell them to stay right where they are, to gather together and become a place of worship in their community. The church made up of men and women, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, is the temple of God. We don't go to the temple We are the temple. Now look at Ephesians 2, where Rebecca read just a minute ago. So there he's talking about how Jesus, through his death, he he paid for our sin individually, but he also abolished any type of division between Jew and Gentile. Anything that keeps people apart, Jesus, Jesus paid for so they could be united as a new people. And so he says this in Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then, because of the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. So if you're Gentile, you weren't part of the people of God. Now he says you're no longer like that. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household. So that's shocking enough that there's no longer any difference in, in, because of your ethnicity and worship. But he goes further. He says, you are built, you a people, are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets With Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building. What building? He's talking about the people. Being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. I think we need to try to understand how radical of a change this was. This was just a shocking development not just for Christians as a whole, but for Jewish Christians especially. I mean, what do you mean we are the temple? Okay, so you can almost ask, like, these looks of confusion on their face going, I don't, so where do we go <laughs> to worship Jesus? Like, if we're the temple, where do we go? And it took time for them to understand there wasn't a single centralized place for all Christians to gather and worship. In fact, they even started to 
be considered a cult by many around them because the people around them would say like, well, where's your temple? And they're like, well, we don't have one. What's wrong with you? How can you not have a temple? Are you like, you don't believe anything? But the lack of a centralized location actually makes an important theological statement about who God is, that he is God over everything, that he is above all, that his rule and reign is not confined to one race or nationality, that he calls people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship him. So if a building isn't a church, what is a church? So on the most basic level, it's an assembly of believers, but I don't think that definition goes far enough. So if I meet with my Christian family members at a beach house, are we a church on the beach? Like, how about that? I was in church on the beach Sunday with my family members. Is is that what we mean by church, or is it more than that? Well, it's certainly more than that. It's an assembly of believers that preach the Word of God and practice baptism and the Lord's Supper correctly. And inherent in baptism and the Lord's Supper is a healthy leadership, church discipline, membership What makes a church, a church is believing, practicing, and proclaiming the gospel. So let's think about what that means for a moment. That means that there are buildings in this town and every other town that have the word church on the sign out front but aren't true churches because they don't preach the word and follow it. A group of people meaning a church building is not necessarily a church. What makes the church is not the location, but the identity of the people, the activity they are doing, and their structure. The identity of the people, they must be Christians. The activity they are doing, they are preaching the gospel, and they are practicing the elements of the gospel given to the church and the structure that they are biblically organized to function as a church. So listen, we have been a church for more than 13 years, even though we don't meet in a church building. As helpful as a building will be, and it will be helpful, it will not make us legitimate. Our identity and our activity are not dependent on a specific type of place. So we need to guard against some wrong thinking when it comes to a building. A nice building is a tool, but it is not a goal. Nor does it guarantee faithful ministry. Like any other tool, it can be used for good purposes, it can be used for bad purposes. We are the church right now because we preach and practice the gospel. We will be a church when we relocate to 152 Wagstaff Road because we preach and practice the gospel. A building does not make us a church. Jesus made us a church when he called us out of our sin, gathered us together, and organized us under his leadership. So here's the first theological guardrail. The church is a people, not a place. Now, here's the second guardrail. People need places. People need places. If the first guardrail protects us from putting too much emphasis on a church building, this guardrail reminds us that a church building can be very helpful in our mission of fulfilling our mission. We all long for a place to call home. This is hardwired in us ever since our parents were kicked out of Eden They wandered outside, but this longing for home never left them. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were originally given the command. We talked about this yesterday at the men's breakfast. They were originally given this command to cultivate their new home. And this desire to cultivate our homes, the places we belong to, is evident today. It's not just in the thousand different remodeling shows, home remodeling shows on TV. I've witnessed it in every country I've visited. 
You could have a, a place in Africa that's, that's made of reeds with a dirt floor, and you'll see, a, you'll see a wife and mother there sweeping out the dirt off a dirt floor. Rich or poor, first world, third world, it doesn't matter. There's this innate human desire to create a space that fits us and reflects who we are and what we love. We see this in the example of Israel as they wander in the wilderness longing for the promised land. I guarantee, though it's not said in the text, that those people made the tents home, right? They decorated them. They, they tried to make them feel like it was a unique space and place for their family. When they finally get to the promised land, what they would do is they found pieces of land and they started to cultivate that land, turning it into a home where they and their descendants would dwell. See, God made us as physical beings. We have these senses of taste, touch, sight, smell, hearing. We come from the ground, and so land with places and spaces is part of us. We are embodied beings residing in space and time, and so places are important. Places matter and mean something to us. One way we see this in the Old Testament is the way places were named as reminders of God's activity and grace in certain spots. Right, so remember the story of Abraham. Abraham is given this really strange command by God. I want you to take your only son, the son you've waited a hundred years for. I want you to take him up on this mountain. I want you to sacrifice him to me. I mean, just this shocking command. And so Abraham goes up there, not sure what the Lord's going to do. And as he prepares to do this, God stops him and points to a lamb. And he says, like, God will provide his lamb for a sacrifice. And it says, in that place, Abraham named it the Lord will provide. So he named that spot in recognition of God's grace to him right there. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, he has is, he is left his home and, he, and, he's, and he's wandering. He doesn't know what's next. He knows he's received the blessing of God, but he doesn't know what's next. And he lays his head down on a stone because he has nothing that belongs to him. And God comes to him in his dream. In this dream, he shows a, a ladder that goes from heaven to earth. And it's a promise of God's presence and blessing. And so he names that place Bethel or the house of God. Israel, when they crossed into the promised land, miraculously through the Jordan River, which God parted, God had Joshua tell them, take 12 stones from the middle of the river. So each tribe takes one stone. When you cross over, you set the stones up as a memorial, as a sign of what God did for you there. See, God does his work in people, and people live in places. Places are significant to our lives and our stories. Imagine there are places you can go and immediately certain memories, good and bad, instantly come to mind, right? And so, like, you can walk into grandma's house and smell Christmas dinner. Or you can go to that spot where you first met your spouse and you can feel butterflies there even though it's years later. Or there's that spot under the tree you fell out of as a kid and broke your arm and it still makes you a little bit nervous to stand there. Right? Our lives are lived in places and those places continue to speak to us. So last week we studied the first chapter of Acts and we looked at the mission. What was the mission God gave to his disciples? And did you notice he told them to go to places? He said, he didn't say, like, you're to be my witnesses 
to the citizens of Jerusalem. He simply said, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Why? Because people live in those places. I mean, yes, ultimately we are sending the Nelsons to reach the people in the Balkans, but they're going to this place and making this place a home. In many ways, the first disciples simply were mirroring the example of Jesus who left heaven and came to a certain place in a certain time. We're going to see this a lot as we study the Gospel of Mark. What does Jesus do? He goes from place to place, and there in those places he finds people. Places where people live, and so our ministry as Christians happens in specific places. So as we think about a new building, we want to cultivate a place that reflects our values of gospel community and mission. Okay? Like Adam and Eve were first told to do, and what we do as those who are formed, reformed in the image of the new Adam, here's what we do. We cultivate a place that reflects our values, a place for the gospel to be proclaimed. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 14. So turn over to 1 Corinthians 14. Now, we know this, right? The gospel can be proclaimed anywhere. Jesus preached on mountains. He preached in fields. He literally, on multiple occasions, got in a boat and had the boat pushed back from the shore a little bit and preached from the boat. I'm thankful we don't have to do a lot of that, right? But he did that. The Jerusalem church met on the porch of the temple. Early Christian churches often met on the roof of one of the members' homes because it was cooler. Our mission as Christians is we... We proclaim the gospel to people in homes, at businesses, in parks, in coffee shops, everywhere we go. But there's something unique that happens when the church gathers together each week to rehearse the gospel. Now, the context of 1 Corinthians 14, it's focusing on the issue of tongues and interpretation, an issue that is far too big for us to get into today. But right in the middle of it, we've got this beautiful picture of the power of the gospel being proclaimed in the gathering of the church. So look at verse 23. If therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Okay, again, we're not going to focus on the issue of tongues. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. The setting here is the church. Gathered in worship, they're inviting non-Christians to join them as they gather to worship God. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel being proclaimed in the weekly services of a local church. Now look at verse 24. He says, But if all are prophesying, and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. Okay, the larger point here, setting aside the issue of the gifts, is this, that the gospel is being proclaimed in a way that everyone can understand. So the church is gathered, they've invited non-Christians to come, and see what's happening, and they are proclaiming the gospel in a way that everyone can understand. Now look at verse 25. I love this. The secrets of his heart will be revealed. Why? Because the gospel is being proclaimed. And as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. So the gathered church is a place where the gospel is proclaimed and unbelievers come to faith. So when we have a building, our goal isn't to make ourselves more comfortable, but to establish a place where the gospel rings out week after week. 
A place where people are invited as unbelieving sinners and they leave as part of a saved community. A place where the worship of God is so real and powerful that even those who don't know God recognize something supernatural is happening there. A place that becomes a memorial of God's grace in transforming lives through his gospel. Okay, so this guides what we build in a very practical way. So we want to make sure the roof doesn't leak. And the HVAC, the air conditioning works, right? Thank you, Don. Why? Because we don't want people distracted by puddles of water or puddles of sweat. We want to make sure the sound system works so that people can hear the message of the gospel. We want to have a clean and safe room for a child to meet in where they hear the stories of Jesus and his love and grace, right? All of these decisions are guided by our desire to cultivate a place where the gospel will be proclaimed. We also want it to be a place for community to be strengthened. Redeemer Community Church is not a club. We are a family We are brothers and sisters, right? We read this just a minute ago. Ephesians 2 verse 19 says we are members of God's household. This is why we say brother and sister to each other. It's not just terminology. This is reality. We view each other and treat each other as a family. Families need homes to gather in. Do you remember the first few weeks of the pandemic in 2020 when we weren't able to gather at all? Like, didn't that make the difficulty and uncertainty even worse? Like, we, we tried to stay connected as best we could through some various electronic means, but virtual is not the same as actual. I say that to all watching on the live stream. I know there are reasons why it's a helpful tool sometimes, but virtual is not the same as actual. Something is missing when we are not able to be together in the same place. Okay, we have have understood this from the very beginning of our time as a church, that relational community is vital to our health as individual Christians and a church. We need to be together. So our longing to be together propels us to build. Because we don't want to be in a position where a phone call on a Thursday afternoon means we don't have a place to meet on a Sunday. We've been there. Or when... A rainy Sunday means we can't gather because the only place that we can all gather together is outdoors. Being together matters. Like a family, having us all under the same roof matters. I've talked with some of you after Christmas whose kids are grown, and when all of the kids come back, you all glow and say there's just something special about all being together again. We feel that here, right? Now, after we build, we are still going to place a priority on gathering in smaller groups and homes throughout the area because that's an important part of us taking the gospel outside the walls of a church building. But we do long for a home that fits us and allows us greater freedom to be together as a family. Third, a place for mission to be launched. This is what we're trying to cultivate, a place for mission to be launched. So I met this week with one of our retired naval officers, we were talking about his time serving in the Far East and how when he served there, the Navy would build home ports in other countries to make their mission more effective. 
the bases are there to enable the ships to do their job. He said without those home ports, the ships would spend all of their time going back and forth across the ocean for training and supplies instead of actually accomplishing their mission. A building for us is a home port that enables us to be more effective in our mission, that we'll spend less time in setting up and tearing down each Sunday. Fewer trips back and forth to a storage unit, getting supplies or less time on the phone and email, simply trying to reserve a location. That same time, energy, and effort can be spent serving people. We believe a new building will be a launching pad for mission to our community. A building says that we're here to stay. We're not temporary renters. We have put our We've put our roots deep down into the soil of our town. So turn to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. So the context of Jeremiah 29 is the nation of Israel was in, this was during the time of exile. So this is after they were defeated by Nebuchadnezzar's army. Many of them were relocated to Babylon to live. And while they're there, God gives them some shocking instructions. It's hard for us actually to even grasp how shocking this would have been to them. So Jeremiah 29, verse 4, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Interesting, just a few theological facts there. The Lord of armies, even though it appeared Israel's army had just lost, but God says, no, I'm still the Lord over there. Notice he says, I deported you, not Nebuchadnezzar. This was part of what I determined No, here's what he says. They're living in Babylon. They're living away from Jerusalem. This is sort of the the heartbeat of paganism. And he says this, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. I've never been a gardener, but you don't get a lot of produce the first year. Sometimes even the second or third year takes a while. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Again, that takes a little time. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage. We're talking about multiple generations so they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for when it thrives, you will thrive. So this is what God says to his people in captivity. He says, make a home in Babylon and by doing so, you will positively impact the community around you. Like it makes a difference if people know you're there long term. Relationships are built on commitment and establishing a permanent place of worship shows our commitment to the people around us. A building is a recognizable place for people to come and seek help. You know, one of the reasons Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple There are a number of reasons, but one reason is because they had set up their shops in the court of the Gentiles. So the court of the Gentiles is sort of the outer area of the temple. This is where those who, when they traveled from other countries to learn about and to worship the true God, this was the place where they would meet and gather and learn. See, See, because of God's reputation, there were people from other countries who, who would make this pilgrimage in the, those Old Testament times to Jerusalem so they could receive help there. And I, that same thing happens today, that if a church develops a reputation for helping people, and, and by God's grace, we're, we've developed that reputation. We can still develop them more, but we've developed it. That building becomes a recognized place for people to come to seek answers and assistance. 
So we, we want the building to be a launching pad for our mission to the community, but also our mission to future generations. I believe God has asked us to sacrifice so that future generations of Redeemer have a place to keep impacting this community and the world with the gospel. We are creating a home for our kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids in the faith to gather and worship, to grow and mature, to pastor and train planters to serve and bless communities around the world. In this way, do you know what we get, brothers and sisters? We get the opportunity to live out the gospel. Right? So the gospel is the good news that Jesus died in our place so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be accepted by God. That he sacrificed himself so that we could gain something that we couldn't earn. So here's what we get to do. We get to sacrifice so that others, those in our community and future generations, can gain something they didn't earn. Like, we get to give so that they can receive. And in this way, we get to picture Jesus. This building will be a gift of grace from God to them through our sacrifice. Like, what a wonderful privilege God has given for us to imitate Christ that way. Right now, we are inhabitants of two worlds as Christians. We are citizens of heaven and earth. We are home here, but, our, but here is not our home. We constantly live in the tension between our current reality and our future residence. As the Apostle Paul said about Christians, he says, we are ambassadors, temporary residents on a mission from the king. Well, guess what? Ambassadors have embassies. Places of sovereign territory where the activities are governed by the laws of the home country. An embassy is a place that is designed to remind everyone of the values of the homeland. For a church, that's what a building should aspire to be. It's an embassy in a foreign land, an outpost of a distant kingdom. It's a place where the values of another country are evident and where the ambassadors carry out the mission of the king. So, Redeemer, let's ask God to give us an embassy. And then as he gives us one, that we'll continue to serve as effective ambassadors for his kingdom. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we are attempting as your people to think well and clearly about a, a topic that, that we believe is, is something we are, we are encountering right now as a church. And so this morning as we have opened up your word together and, and really just looked at a number of different principles from your word, we ask that you'll, you'll help us to continue to think deeply about what you've said and how we as your people put these truths into practice here. Help us never to confuse a building with the church. But help us to always realize that we, your people, are your temple where you gather with us where we gather. You are in us. Your spirit abides within us, both individually and corporately as your people. But Lord, as you give us opportunity to build, help us to cultivate a place that reflects your values. May there be a, a particular scent in the air of any building we inhabit, one that smells of something beyond our current experience, the, the smell of a far country that helps people long for something that they don't know quite what it is. Lord, help us to reflect the values of your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.